Please pray with me. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts will be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Lord, we are eager to be with you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The text today center around a theme that you may not have noticed. It could have slipped past you easily enough. It really is centered in the word good. Jesus and this rich young ruler were having a conversation about what is good, who is good, what, what good must I do. And Paul instructs Titus concerning good works, fruitfulness, the good works that are called upon us as followers of Jesus Christ. Or for the rich young ruler, the truly good work that he could do, but that he finally turned away from. And we'll come back to that later. Years ago, the Lord caught my attention with a passage that was not read today. I've really never gotten over it. It was maybe about 30 or 40 years ago that I ran across and really dug into Ephesians 2.10. For you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And I was studying that about the time that Sally's grandmother gave us this beautiful tablecloth made of cruel work, C-R-E-W-E-L, not C-R-U-E-L, okay? All right. And uh, it, it was cruel work. And I, was, I marveled at it because it was medallions made of knotted cotton thread and just dozens and dozens and dozens of medallions that were then woven together with more cotton thread to form this quite large tablecloth. And I could not in my mind conceive of the amount of time that it took for her to make this. But she just sat patiently making it, putting it together for this thing that I, I'm, I was astonished at. It, it connected to me with this phrase because at that time I was reading about this concept, you are God's handiwork. You are his work of his hands, a living, growing work of art and goodness. Handiwork, things like that tablecloth. You might imagine something like an intricate wood carving, or you might uh, imagine a, a, a piano concerto that you learn how to play, or that even better, that you've written, or a painting of a ship on the ocean. We are created in Christ Jesus, Paul tells the Ephesians, for a purpose. We are recreated through the gospel, but we are then, then sent in the world to make a difference for the good of the world. And what is good for the world is that which is good, defined by the author of good, the source of all good, God himself. Every good thing and every perfect thing comes from the Father in heaven with whom there's no shifting shadow. And that good is not for our glory. As much as people may be impressed with your ability to lead a great team meeting or to wow people with the magic of your teaching from in front of the classroom, ultimately those good things for us as followers of Jesus Christ are meant to point beyond ourselves. They're for the sake of others. So that people may see behind the path that we walk and the good works we do, the God who created us and saved us, the author of goodness, the source of blessing. What I'm doing really in one sense is riffing on a very familiar verse. Let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Right, same idea. And what we can conclude from this is that good works, fruitfulness for the sake of others, are important to God and have a place within the life of redemption. And in, ultimately, as followers of Jesus Christ, we can say it is good to do good in this world 
as the people of God, it's a core calling of our discipleship. Now, go back to Titus. That's where I really want to land. Titus speaks of good works. And I chose this passage over the Ephesians 2 passage, which, by the way, is my kind of favorite verse about good works, because there is this larger message which comes through bright and clearly in the book of Titus. And if you have a Bible, it'd be great for you to turn there to Titus, because if you open it up, it's likely just on one page. In other words, it's it's a short little book. It covers about one and a third pages on my Bible. And yet Paul uses the term good works six times in this book. In addition, he says that the presbyters that Titus is in Crete to appoint must be lovers of good. He speaks of people who profess the Christian faith, but don't back it up with good works. They deny it by their works. He speaks of older women who teach younger women what is to do good. He speaks of the goodness of God. There's a total of 10 references in this short little book to good, goodness, or good works. So clearly that was on Paul's mind. And you got to ask yourself why. Well, Crete was a proverbially wicked place. And as the gospel penetrated Crete, Paul was concerned that Titus teach the church to live out their goodness of God in the midst of this uniquely unchristian culture. It was a violent culture. It was untrustworthy. It was dominated by deception, bribery, and gluttony. And Paul seemed to know that for the gospel to penetrate such a resistant, unethical culture, Christians needed to be determined to live lives that bring good and bring glory to God bring good to others, and bring glory to God. But he was very careful to put good works into a context, a greater context, so there'd be no mistake where our actions fit within the redemptive plan of God in our life. And that's what this Titus 2 passage starts. There's no confusion here. Look in verse 5. Excuse me. Verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. The movement of changed lives is God's grace to us that leads salvation, right? That's where it begins. We are dead in, dead in our sins and trespasses. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. None of us lives up to that glory, Romans 3, through 24. It was while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us. One would hardly die for a, a, another person. But the amazing thing is in the love of Christ, he died for the ungodly when we had given him no thought at all. So grace is a full stop check at the door of the Christian life. It's almost like you got to have a ticket, right? It's a ticket that's given to you, but you got to have that ticket in your hand in the sense to get into the door. There's this parable about the wedding feast. And the Lord tells the parable about people who were not dressed properly and therefore were kicked out of the wedding feast. Interestingly enough, in that context, it was the owner, it was the host of the wedding who gave people what to wear when they walked in the door. They didn't come already. So it wasn't like they, they needed to figure it out themselves. They just had to put on what was already be, was being given to them. But here's the deal. At some point, we must all realize that we are loved and forgiven through Christ and by Christ, even though we absolutely don't deserve it. And we all have that in our story. At least we hopefully do. A point in time when we've come to that or else a settled conviction that we know where we stand before the Lord. We just sang a song. It was, you know, it was not I who sought the Lord, but he sought me. And it's that beautiful song in which it puts it in right order. But having come into the wedding feast, if you want to put it that way, 
the household of God that is opened by grace, the door that's opened by grace, grace walks the rest of the way with us for the rest of our lives and enables us to live lives that benefit other people. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 and 2 says this phrase that I love. It's called, we have been given by grace that we are standing. We've been welcomed into a, a grace in which we stand is really what it says. And we used to live in Canada and love to do my, mountain hiking. And love to hike up in the high passes of the mountains. And you would go through these rocky places and all of a sudden you would come through a very narrow opening and it would open up into an alpine valley. It was just beautiful. And it would be a, usually a stream or river and there's flowers everywhere in the summertime and it's just absolutely gorgeous. And I always remember that Romans 5 to into this grace in which we stand. We've been ushered into a place that is beautiful and wide open and there's where we stand and there's where we walk. Well, Paul says that having gotten in that door, so to speak, having been welcomed to this place, in verse 12, it says grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Grace trains us and roots out the sinful desires in our lives. In other words, as we struggle with the issues, as we face temptations, as we face our own failure and come in confession, again and again, we receive the mercy and the grace of God. And in the mercy and grace of God, he continues to work with us in our process and our hearts are transformed by the grace and mercy and love of God in Jesus Christ. And the love that's undeserved keeps breaking into our hearts. Love like an ocean in its fullness. And you can't sail the ocean in one day, guys. It's a big ocean out there. It just rolls in our lives. It says that we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And through that process... The Spirit of God transforms us. Literally, metamorphosis is the word. But I just encourage us that in order for that to be our experience, we have to take time. I talked to you at the beginning about being fully present. Often, I think in our lives, we have to just sit and take time to be present to the Lord. To gaze at the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And to sit long enough to let the impact of who Jesus is begin to be absorbed into our souls. And it's transformative. It changes the way we think and changes the way we act. So I encourage you to understand that what's happening is the operations of grace in our life, of mercy and love of God, train us, transform us, change us, turn us, verse 13, to the blessed hope. Giving as we see more and more the glory of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we see again, he comes back to, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for, what's the next phrase? Good works. Zealous for good works. So good works emerge out of this context. It is that flame of grace that the rich young ruler missed. He says to Jesus, I have spent my life following the commandments. I've done them faithfully and consistently. And at least the ones about morality and ethics. Jesus sort of turns this question on himself and in a sense hangs the, good, the rich young ruler. Because he asks him about the moral and ethical side of the conversation of the Ten Commandments. And the rich young ruler says, hey, check, 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 check. I've done that. And then Christ brings the first three commandments to bear in this man's life with a simple question. 
Will you let go of the things that you believe define your life, that bring you security, that you've achieved? Will you just drop them? Will you take your money and give it away to the poor and do one thing? Follow me. Will you do that one thing which is actually no work at all? That one work that is not a work, which is simply a a process of yielding, of surrendering, of receiving, of acknowledging who we are before the Lord. The rich young ruler turned away sad because that was the one thing he could not do. If you want to translate it in some practical terms, my guess is the rich young ruler was faithful in his temple obedience and a temple attendance. I think he went to, went, went to the temple all the time. He was at all the services, all the services, but he had never become a worshiper. He had never come to humble himself before the Lord. Jesus brought it to head with one action, an action of release and receiving, an action of emptying our hands, just letting go and letting God put into our hands what we cannot achieve ourselves. So disciples of Jesus, here's a marvelous reality. Once we let go of our good works and accomplishments as things that prove something about us, the retraining program can start. (laughs) And our hearts can be trained in a new and fresh way that will then therefore return to us in good works that God lays out for us to do. Opportunities that come our way miraculously to do beyond what we could possibly ever do in our lives. So the question for the people being confirmed and received is this. Back to Ephesians 2.10. How has God crafted you to do good? If you look back in your stories, in your own personal story, you'll see things, even if you're on the young side of this conversation, where God has built things into you, stirred things into you, where God has made you a certain way. And pay attention to the things that bring you the most pain or the most joy. And I mean that because those are the places closest to your heart. What brings you most pain? What brings you most joy? And in that discern what the Lord has made you to do, the ways that he has hardwired you for good in the world, where do you gravitate for joy and for meaning? Where do you gravitate because you love it? But also where have you been the most deeply wounded and you're afraid to go there? Because that's also what's very important to you as well. And there's a clue there to the things that are important for God in your life. So I encourage you to look at your story and see how God has woven you, the tapestry of your life, the bright colors and the dark colors, the things that seem rough, the things that seem smooth. And how do these things get woven into the work that you are supposed to do for the good of others that brings glory to God? What's your platform in the world? When I confirm people, I always ask them, what would you like for me to pray for you about? And I don't ever promise that I'm going to pray what they ask me to pray. I'm going to pray for them and listen to what God has to say. I always mention to people, if you don't like what I pray, take it up with God. I, you know, I'm just doing what he tells me to do, right? And sometimes people don't. A couple of weeks ago, I prayed for a guy and he goes, I didn't like that at all. I said, sorry. <laughs> he said, you know why I didn't like it? He said, because I'm afraid it's true. I said, sorry, guy. You know what I mean? I'm sorry. Uh, there was a woman who I confirmed early in my, early in my process uh, who said to me, I'm a violin teacher, and I'm really, really good. And I love the violin, and I'm an excellent teacher. But I hate my students. Believe <laughs> really, really what she said. I can't stand my students. And she said, 
I know that I'm teaching them to play the violin, but I am not teaching them music. Would you pray for me that I will love my students so that in the good violin teaching I do, I can actually teach people to play the music that God has put into their hearts. Love that prayer. I got to pray exactly what she asked me to pray because that was right on. So do you understand what's going on here? What do you love? What's the impact of what you love? How has God wired you to teach others the music of God? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.